Okay, um, so we're back with our 14th episode of the Utility Strategy Podcast, the first infrastructure podcast to shine a light on what we love to call utility strategy. As we all know, various utilities pose an enormous risk to any infrastructure project and create extreme uncertainty amongst the different stakeholders. The thing is that with the right utility strategy, we're able to mitigate that risk and streamline our project, which is what our podcast is all about, uh, sharing and gaining all kinds of insights that will enable just that, helping project managers, utility coordinators, estimators, mappers, planners, designers, engineers, and any other stakeholder overcome the challenge of both utilities in our right of way. And to help us do just that, we have here with us today uh, Professor Nicole uh, Nietzsche, uh, which has conducted a fascinating research that uh, I think most of you have probably heard of uh, and is quoted by various industry thought leaders and, uh, and stakeholders. Uh, so, uh, so, Nicole, uh, without further ado, uh, let's dive right into it. Uh, tell us about yourself. Yes, hello. Um, so my name is Nicola Mitya. I'm an academic at the University of Birmingham in the UK. Um, I've, um, I've done research on sort of utilities, utility detection, utility strikes, probably for the best part of 15 years now um, in, in various disguises. Um, we used to have projects called Mapping the Underworld and Assessing the Underworld, which were really flagship projects in the UK to develop sensing technologies to detect buried assets, but also sensing technology to look at the condition of buried assets. And amongst that work, I then really got fascinated in utility strikes and why we damage our utilities. And then um, did a lot of the research that you just uh, mentioned about better understanding why we damage utilities, what type of utilities we damage most, what tools we use, but also what the costs are of this. So, so I know, uh, I know you've been talking uh, in our previous conversation, we talked a bit about um, how our industry is, uh, is uh, fragmented and how that basically implicates uh, our projects, how that implicates, uh, uh, how that impacts, not implicates, sorry, the uh, the subsurface work. Um, maybe, maybe you could talk a bit about well, that. Hang on a second, David. I, I really like the way, uh, Nicole, that you've evolved from uh, the mapping the underworld projects, looking at all the tools and techniques and trying to find solutions to actually discovering and really digging into uh, the whole system of, uh, uh, of the issue right now, and especially with your current research. Uh, I'm really interested to understand what drew you to the underground world? What drew you to utilities? It's it's really a, it's not a subject which is normally taught. You know, utilities are just a fact of life. And I know that most engineering programs just, they deal with uh, utilities on the high level, but never really get into it. So what, what really made you focus on that? Or how did you evolve into that? Oh, that's that's a, a slightly longer story, but, um, and it's <laughs> something that I wasn't involved with at the beginning. The, the university had a project called Network, where there were two T's in Network, and the two T's were trenchless technologies. And as part of really pushing the um, trenchless technologies and getting away from trenching on the surface, um, occupying the, the roads, um, and therefore causing sort of traffic congestion and things like that, and all the negative impacts 
trenching has. Um, as part of that, the stakeholders actually said, we, we have the technology to do trenchless. We would love to do it even more and more. But one of the problem is, or the biggest uh, risk to um, using trenchless technologies is not accurately knowing where our existing buried assets are. And that's how it really started off. And that was sort of the early 2000s um, when when that work was conducted. There, there were different elements to it, but that was one of the key learning processes. That then um, set up a uh, what's called a sand pit. So our, our um, research council funders um, developed a, a framework or a methodology where they brought people together under what they called a sand pit from really different backgrounds and different interests to really look at the problem from a bit sort of left field. And out of that stemmed the mapping, um, the underworld project. The initial one was a feasibility study and then it moved into a much more in-depth study. So it really um, all stemmed from the trenchless technology work and the problems that they are facing to really start looking into um, that area um, a lot more. Yeah, and my, my really personal sort of journey is, is probably even more complicated because um, I was I actually did a PhD in coastal engineering um, for all. So something completely different, but I always had an interest in tunneling and tunnel construction. And um, at the time, one of um, the professors here at Birmingham said, well, pipes are tunnels just on a very small scale. So if you're interested in tunneling, why are you not? You could be also interested in buried pipes, um, and that's really how it all developed. So the, the research at Birmingham developed from the trenchless technology side, and my personal interest in it actually stemmed from tunneling, and a pipe is a small tunnel idea. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's, a great, uh, that's a great rolling of the pipes, <laughs> as we'll call it. No, that's, that's absolutely amazing. So I'm really glad to, to hear that people are actually taking a look at this and people are actually acknowledging and the universities are providing funding for such such great uh, such great research projects. You know, if the fact that it's not out of sight, out of mind, but it's out of sight, but taken in mind, is is really an amazing thing. So, really, uh, hats off to Birmingham and hats off to your professor who equated uh, tunnels with pipes. I never really thought of that that uh, tunnels are smaller pipe or uh, pipes are smaller tunnels, but I see the. Uh, I see the analogy now. <laughs> I, I, I suppose some of the pipes can be quite big, and, and then yeah. you get more into sort of your micro tunneling with some of the sewers and things. So um, I, I think it's important to to note it wasn't the university who paid for the funding; it's actually the UK uh, research councils, um, in, in particular EPSRC, so the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, give the funding to the universities. But you obviously have to make a really good case. And I think what was really helping us at the time was that that industry was um, it, it was it was beginning to be more on on their um, sort of at the forefront of their minds that the issues, uh, as I said, especially driven initially from the trenches technology community, the sort of industry partners, but then also from the asset owners themselves, but also those operating in the street. So I think very quickly we accumulated quite a strong um, industry backing and industry interest in the work we were doing. So I think that's really what helped sort of really accelerate it. Um, and that's still what I do today. The, the working with industry is probably the, the most exciting aspects of the work. The, the research itself being an academic, clearly that's exciting and that's what I enjoy. But I think also really seeing the impact of the 
of the research is what I think is really important. Wow. David, do you have any other any other questions about that? That's that's really uh, I, I like to hear that. Well, I, I'd love to to, to, to dive into uh, maybe we can, we can talk about Noel uh, a bit. So yeah, if, um, for for those of you on the call or who will watch this who don't know what it is, so NUA is an acronym standing for the National Underground Asset Register. This is an initiative in the UK that is driven by the Geospatial Commission, which is part of government. And the idea, as, as the name says, is to develop a um, platform which um, hosts all the information about our buried um, utilities um, or underground assets, but mainly focusing initially on utilities as opposed to anything else. So they've done a, a pilot study and I was on the advisory board, advisory team that's finished and they've now commissioned it at full scale, um, at full scale. Um, so what the, the advantage is, so, so the, the, you might wonder why is this needed? So in, in the UK, the um, industry is quite fragmented, which means we have a lot of private companies who can put buried assets in the ground. And they all keep their own record on their databases. Um, you've got, um, you can inquire about it. And um, there is a, a standard which says how quickly the company should respond to your request or for information. We also have a couple of centralized, um, well, not centralized, but a couple of um, service providers who will do the search for you based on the information they hold on their database. Um, but otherwise, you're basically potentially contacting tens of companies who may have assets in the ground in your in the area of, of interest. And to overcome this issue, the um, Geospatial Commission, um, as I said, st started looking into this problem and testing, um, doing the feasibility study. And now they've commissioned it. And what this will give you is a, a central portal which you can put in your coordinates or you put in a polygon. I'm not quite sure what, what it is at the moment. And you can get the information of the buried assets in that particular area within your um, your location. So sorry, just to clarify for our North American viewers, because uh, a lot of people are going to be seeing this video are from North America. The UK does not have a centralized 811 or call before you dig system, correct? We don't, no, we don't no. Um, have that system. And within North America, a lot of area, a lot of jurisdictions have that, uh, that uh, it's not a passive response, but it's an active response where actually utilities send people out every time you're going to call for an excavation. They actually send people out to make sure that you are not going to hit their lines and that, to actually mark out their lines. And that is not commonplace in the UK. I believe that in the UK, there are a few uh, private systems that actually do that for you. But in North America, it has become a very, uh, uh, it's become a, a growing industry of damage prevention, where uh, a lot of companies are not sending their own people, they're actually hiring third party contractors, LSPs, locate service providers, to go out and protect their plant. Now, is that good? Is that better? Uh, you know, the, just in terms of the uh, numbers and the damages and just also at the scale of excavation in the US, versus UK or versus other places, it would be interesting to know. But uh, in terms of damage prevention, do you believe this is going to be a big tool in damage prevention, Nicole, for the UK? 
I, I, I believe it will be the first step in the right direction because what it will do, it will still only, in apostrophes, pull together um, the information that's available on statutory records. So that still just means what the um, what the individual companies hold. Um, but it will stop you having to hunt through that information by having to contact the different companies or or um, authorizing a third party to do so on your behalf. But what it doesn't do is it won't change the accuracy of the data that's on those statutory records. So that's something it will not do. It will just put, pull them together. What it will certainly help with is um, there's quite a lot of work that's classified as emergency work, which falls under different guidelines and rules and regulations. <clears throat> and the, the emergency work, so if it's um, if it's driven by, I don't know, the outage or so, which has to be repaired within a certain time frame, often sort of 24 hours, um, then you just haven't got the time to contact all these individual organisations to ask for their statutory records. You then put it together on your database. So therefore, that will have quite a significant impact in, in that area. But it still is only as good as the original data is. And that's where... Um, there's still there, there will be work that follows on from that is how can we update the data as we get better information and that better information can come from a whole range of sources i believe so it's obviously the asset owners improving their own statutory records um, because they have excavated something they've an area they may have um, renewed an uh, renewed their assets in an area they may therefore know as built information which feeds into their own records which then automatically feeds into the newer platform um, but what it does what I think you can also do is there's a lot of work that's done as part of a call, call it a third party contract so where a contractor wants to design build something nothing to do with the utilities but as we know every time you break ground one of the biggest ha hazards or risks is the other buried utilities so therefore they will commission a um, organization to carry out a utility survey at least you would hope following a pass 128 standard which is the uk standard which is sort of akin to asce 38 in north america but it's, it's slightly different, but hopefully they will commission a uh, geophysical survey company to do a quality level B survey. They will do this and they, they will provide the data to the contractor and or consultant. Um, but that data is available, but that data doesn't necessarily feed back to the asset owner. So even if you find your asset is the, the actual position, location of the asset is differs from the statutory records by more than a meter or so, there is no requirement to inform the asset owner um, that the location on their statutory record is incorrect. You will get a lot of good contractors and consultants who will do that as part of their, um, their, their processes, but there is no formal framework that this has to be done. So therefore the question is, can you actually also update uh, records at the newer level, so not necessarily at the asset owner level, um, where you can just say we've, we've um, surveyed this area, um, we have better information or we can demonstrate that assets are not in the position where they are shown on the records. Can you update it locally as a sort of almost like a, I always um, think it's like a puzzle piece. Um, you get different bits of the puzzle um, 
because you're not going around the whole of the UK or the whole of the US or Canada and survey every single street, every single area in the whole country. That's not something that um, asset owners will do. But because we do work in certain areas, we do get updated information. So the question is, can we actually use that information? Now, when I was going through NUR and really trying to get a, an understanding, I understand it's a voluntary program. It's not mandatory for utility owners to actually be a part of NUR. Aren't we worried that we're going to be projecting a uh, incomplete picture when we're doing this? Yeah, I, th I think um, I would probably not be the absolute right person to comment on the um, the sort of legal side of it, of a better word, because I believe that ultimately the vision for newer is is that it's not a voluntary service and it's actually compulsory, and because it's backed by government as opposed to a private organisation, as I said, the Geospatial Commission are part of government. The hope would be that they have the the, the cloud behind them, that they can make it mandatory through um, guidelines, rules, laws. Um, but I don't know what the latest thinking in that area is because it's, it's changing a bit. I mean, the other thing that you might, might say um, a lot of people are concerned about is the, um, the safety side, uh, so security side in terms of who can access the data, um, how much they can access what information can they get? What uh, metadata information can they get rather than just X, Y, Z positions? And I know that NUA has uh, spent a significant um, amount of time and resources to look into exactly those aspects. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So the, the reason why I asked that was when you're doing research on UR, when you're doing research on damage prevention, would that not be a factor of what you're looking at? Like, would that not be a, a factor saying, okay, wait a minute, there's only X amount of people involved in this right now. Uh, you know, wh wh what are we going to do with this? Like, how are we going to actually uh, build this into our study that we know that there's X percentage that's not been signed up yet? I, I personally think um, it might be that it's... Um sort of almost group pressure eventually. Um, if you've signed up, um, why would you not sign up? What's the um, what's the drawback for an individual company? But it still comes down to the fact that in the UK, we have this fragmented industry. So we have something like 20, last, last time I thought I looked at it, we have 26 water companies. We have, um, um, we, we've got one gas network, um, but we also have lots of gas uh, network operators. We have lots of telecoms. We have lots of um, broadband fibers. Um, so at some stage, there was some previous work done, which was done by the by NJAC, the National Drum Joint Utilities Group. And when they were looking into this um probably about 10 years ago. I'm not quite sure about the exact date, but certainly while I've been looking into this area, they um, said that within the M25 motorway, so the M25 is the ring road, the ring motorway around London, there are 168 asset owners having assets in the street. Um, That's it. And it's <laughs> compared to the US, it's actually quite a small um, area, but it's, it's a huge number of... Yeah companies who potentially have assets in the street that's that's really amazing do, do you think uh, Nicole, that 
when we talk to our customers or when we talk to, to other industry stakeholders, the, the biggest challenge that, that we hear about is the fact that the as-bits, as, just the as-bits aren't accurate. Because sometimes a contractor uh, puts, some, put, puts it into the ground a bit differently, like it may be 50 meters to the left or 40 feet to the right, and it doesn't update the plans. He doesn't kind of, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, mark it up. Um, and so, so even, even if the stakeholders do share their records, like who's to say that they're, that they're accurate? Absolutely. I think that's what um, it, it's always been an, an issue that the as planned is being translated as as built and there has been no difference. So, again, I, I think it's it's maybe also looking at and how we um, how we pay for for certain jobs, whether um, it's not necessarily done on the um, on the metrage of pipes laid or so, or metrage of cable laid, which is often what a, what a standard um, contract is. Um, I know that in the US, there is a new ASCE um, guidelines coming out where, because I'm on the ASCE 38 committee and we often hear about the as-built standard that is being prepared uh, as we speak um, um, as well. And so hopefully that makes a difference. Um, we've had something similar in the UK where we've tried to um, where we've tried to have look more at the as build and what sort of information you want to share because at the end of the day it's everybody has an interest to make things safer, to make excavation safer, um, to reduce the number of utility strikes. So therefore the more accurate data we share, the, the better it is in the long run. But it's quite difficult, as I said, when, when you're a contractor and you're paid by the meter of completion, of, for, for argument's sake, it's, it's really quite difficult to see the benefits in spending time to do an as-built survey. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. Even uh, uh, last, last week, we even uh, heard from a, a senior vice president of one of the of a big corporation uh, in the united states he said that to to really get the job done we're going to have to have a team of uh, surveyors on the ground kind of uh kind of training the the project and the excavating and the putting the pipelines into the ground and that would be the only way to make sure that the uh as planned are really are really as such No, absolutely. Um, I think otherwise we're, we're constantly sort of, we, we are not removing the problem. We're just creating more problems for us in the future. So we can't deal, we can't do anything with our legacy assets. So that those who've been in the ground and certainly in the UK, we've got assets that are 200 years old that have been put in during Victorian times. In London, we've got Raymond Sewers. So that's over, over 2000 years old. So we have really old assets and we can't do anything about the legacy, but we are not reducing the problem if we don't monitor as build going forwards. So when do we come to a point in time where we say, okay, we're right now using the Band-Aid effect. Every time something happens, we put a Band-Aid on. When are we going to come to the realization of a, a one quick swoop and actually taking care of the problem 
and really investing that money because every damage, every miscalculation, every uh, every conflict, you know, every time we do anything and we do not work into that one common system, it, it just causes a lot of issues. So do you see that actually happening in the UK where, as you were saying before, because it's a government organization, perhaps they'll have the ability to throw their weight behind it and actually get to legislation or standards or, uh, or laws regarding uh, reporting utilities and actual uh, proper assessments and proper uh, submission of asbelts. Yeah, I'm actually wondering whether going through the Geospatial Commission and, and sort of the, the sort of WIP approach is the right approach or whether it's actually a carrot approach is the better way. And, and I can give you an example. So as I said, we in the UK, we've now got past 128. So that's our ASC um, 38 equivalent. And that was really, um, that, that came about because industry saw the need. So it was the survey industry that saw the need. So the, the practitioners who want to do a subsurface utility engineering survey, um, the contractors, the consultants, because they said we can't differentiate between different quotes we're getting. We're getting quotes for X thousand pounds and 10 times X thousand pounds. And we can't differentiate what, what the differences in quality we're getting. We, um, we don't really have any confidence because, again, we, we can't assess the, the sort of different levels of service we get, the different qualities. Um, but it wasn't just one industry pushing for it. As I said, it was contractors, um, consultants, asset owners and the practitioners um, who came together. Um, I was also included being as, as the only academic, but we all came together looking at the common common goal and from this um, the pass one to aid was developed we had a smaller steering committee because a, a pass in in the uk is, is a publicly available um, specification and that is really driven by industry and it's not driven by the uh, standards institution so it is actually driven by industry and i i wonder whether some of the challenges we, we see in terms of the as-build compared to the as-planned or as-designed, whether that really needs industry to come together to actually say, how, how can we handle this as an um, overall organisation? Because the problem always is, and that's what some of the work that I've done shows, is um, the actual return on investment or benefits, and it's the same if you look at some of the Sioux studies in North America, is it's not a one entity, one customer who pays for the benefits. It's actually um, covered in, in different areas because you've got, if you think about it, so in my study, we included things like um outage of business, closure of business because a, a, a water pipe or cable was struck. So the business had to close. Then we looked at all the extra detours people had to take because they couldn't go al along a certain route. We looked at, um, we looked at air pollution because of, um, having traffic, traffic management, um, looking at what, additional co2 you have sorry Nicole, that, that is your uh, that is your that is your study what you're doing on the uh on the uh 
roundabout effects of utility damage or well this was on no. the cost but what i was trying to say that there were lots or there are lots of different elements that and 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 when i say costs it's not necessarily pound costs so as i said the co2 environmental costs is is different it's not not just a pound cost but i think the key message from for, for my side is that it's not one organization who does bear all the costs so the environmental the co2 emissions that's that's the um it's the public so it's not the asset owner who owns the pipe it's not the contractor who um sees the negative impact of the additional co2 emission it's the general public if you have an outage to your theatre and the theatre has to close, then it's the theatre's loss of business and the people who, um, the audience who was watching that, who um, get their money back or have to go so, so they they don't have their entertainment. And I think it's it's that sort of thing um, where I think the sort of the, the difference between the as built and as planned and the sort of really having a community drive towards making things better because you cannot say it's the asset owners the utility companies they they will save all the money because it isn't you can't say the contractor will save all the money because it's not them either it's you can't say it's the the people who pay for the for the bills the utility bills because it is them in some respects and the bills might actually go up but in turn they may have may use less petrol because they're not stuck in traffic jams so they all they all linked these impacts of not knowing where our buried utilities are if you're looking at it much broader there's insurance company um, aspect to it that you could discuss as well um, so therefore, I think it really needs a um, a more community approach with all interested parties to really say, well, how can we, of a better word, reform industry much broader to for us all to benefit? So it's it's really funny that this this whole scenario of uh, community and everyone wanting that that better uh, that better system and everyone wanting to reduce the society the societal and economical impacts. But that that brings me to the uh, I, I remember uh, who was it? Robert De Niro saying, "Everyone likes to go to the party, but no one likes to clean up." So we we all want to have that there. We all want that 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 best piece of utility information, but no one uh, you know, just getting people to commit to it and really getting people to all say yes. You know what? I know it's going to be a little bit of pain right now up front, but you know, getting people to actually get to that point is is that uh, is I what I believe is where your study is going to come into a you know, actually make it a reality, you know, showing people, hey, wait a minute, we are paying for it. We are looking at it. And uh, what type of impact has your study or is it still ongoing? Like, do you think you're going to be having an impact? Where is this going to be released? Is it going to be on the front page of page of London Times saying societal impact and cost is, you know, is destroying our lives? Or are we, you know, is this going to be shelved and it's going to be read out? To, you know, it's going to be quoted in a few other studies five years down the road. Um, the the full report is available on our website, so that's free or free. Anybody can download, but you have to have the energy to read something like 60 pages. Um, a, a short version of this is, has been published as an academic paper, although it's, it's published in a journal that is, I would say, less academically... Um, not focused, but it's it's also attracts um, industry as well, rather than a purely academic journal and that's also free because 
Um, we've made it as open access, so that can be downloaded. Anybody who wants the sort of shorter version of the 50 pages and just wants to read the sort of 10, 10 I can't remember, but around 10, 12 pages or so. So that's the condensed version. Um, where would I like to see it? Um, well, I, I c clearly it's been used by industry. So the Geospatial Commission for the Justification of Newer has used quite a lot of the work. As you, as you said in your introduction, a lot of industry partners use it to quote why why it's important that to avoid utility strikes. I, I think being an academic, I would always also consider the limitations of the study. And I think that was something we, we also just talked about. And the limitations of the study is that it was based on a, a very small subset of incidents. Because to really understand fully the costs and the implications and impact of utility strikes, it's very hard to do it retrospectively. You actually have to do it as, well, you do it retrospectively, but as soon as the utility strike happened, you basically have to rush to site within a day or so and interview people, look at the um, local businesses, really understand why it happened, but also what the impact was, and then actually follow it within an organization who who may have had their their site shut down, um, what does it mean? Because one thing we noticed is the way it's it's recorded within the organizations that were unlucky where the, where the utility strike happened is that if, if a site is shut down, that gets written into a different um, cost within the organization and it's not necessarily attributed to the project cost. So it's it's something that is really hard to follow at a much later stage than almost immediately as it happened. But that may, makes it quite, um, of better word, labor-intensive, research-intensive to do so. Um, and you need to have uh, participating organizations. So my aim is to um, still, through sort of smaller research projects, through students, to expand on this um, and to get more data so that we can get more confidence in the data. Um, that That's really what I would like to see. And then then clearly publicize it as widely as possible. But considering it's it's been published by government or it's been picked up by government and they are using a lot of my research as references, I think from a sort of impact viewpoint on the sort of political side, I think you can hardly get any any more than that. Um, but it is a lot of work is now ongoing, really working with industry to there are lots of different projects. Again, this is this is my puzzle piece analogy. So in, in the UK, certainly, and probably the same in the US, there are lots of different initiatives, they all try to do certain aspects of the bigger picture. And, and what I do is through the work I do is I sit on a lot of advisory boards, steering committees, I'm involved in some of the research and really try and share, of a better word, best practice, but also share what's already happened, what work has already gone on, what research has already been done, because it's, it's so vast of the different aspects that have actually already been looked at. And again, it's actually quite interesting to, to piece this all together. Do you see the UK emulating the, uh, the, the system in North America and actually going to an active response system where you'll have called? No, you don't see that no. coming up. And is that no. uh, economic or is that just, uh, is that just the way things are and, you know, just the, uh, um, just the, uh, the UK way? Um, 
I think it's quite hard to say whether it's a UK way, but it's certainly not something that's ever on the agenda or on the cards in the, in the UK, which is why I'm giving it sort of quite a, a, a sort of straightforward no response. Um, obviously, you never say never um, in the good old James Bond uh, fashion. So who knows? But at the moment, that's not been discussed at all. It's much more... Um, whether there's a sort of a system in in um, Holland and Belgium where, and and so, so there, there are two there are different systems in in Europe. There's one in sort of Holland and Belgium where there's much more pressure on asset owners having to update their statutory records if on site it's um, found that they are more than one meter out from their statutory records. So there's quite that's a legislation that they actually have to come either come out or use the data and update their records within a fixed period of time, which is also quite short. Um, that that's one approach. Then you have the Scandinavian countries, um, Norway, Sweden, who have a slightly different approach, where it's a lot more the responsibility of the asset owner to ensure that their records are accurate. And I wouldn't be surprised if we may go into that direction where, because at the moment you get a statutory record from an asset owner and it says um, on it that any excavation is at your own risk. They don't take any responsibility for the information on it. So what I see is that it might go the other way that maybe more pressure will be put on the asset owners to ensure their records are up to date or uh, well, not up to date but more accurate do you see the uh i, I know that you're very uh knowledgeable about the uh, the american site theology it's uesi and ac 38 they're also coming out with ac 75 now which is going to be an as-built standard do you see that being adopted in and they're using the muddy standard as well which is uh from the ogs open geospatial anything you know, on there they're really they're adopting that so it'll be a common language right across the world for actually developing as-built. Do you see that as uh, another avenue, perhaps to uh, tie into new R or, or even uh, modify or, or benefit for new R? So potentially, so we had an as-built standard, or we still have an as-built standard, which is PAS 256. Um, but that never really took off in the UK. Um, it never really seemed to have the sort of industry um, buy-in, even though it was developed by industry, but I think it was a small subset of industry, so it didn't have the large buy-in that, that you would expect. Um, I, I think the as-build will come up every now and then, um, but I think you really need to get the buy-in um, of industry. And being so fragmented, I think that's quite... Yeah, that, that reminds me actually of the Canadian, uh, the CSAS 250. And uh, they came out with a fantastic as-built standard in uh, 2010. Uh, it was released in uh, 2012, and they just actually did a uh, an update of it. But unfortunately, I think only two or three municipalities have actually adopted it, and only very little utility. I think maybe one or two utilities have actually adopted the use of that standard. Now, there are a few progressive uh, municipalities who are now tying that into their permitting, saying that you shall return a CSAS 250 compliant uh, as constructed or as built. But it's really amazing how we have such great documents and such a, a great amount of time that has gone into actually producing them. And then when push comes to shove, and at the end, no one it, it makes a great paperweight, but, you know, 
or now it makes a great uh, PDF file on your computer now, but no one's actually using it. You know, and everyone likes to quote it, but if, if it's not used and if we're not, if we're not taking, uh, taking what we've already written seriously, how, how can we even think that, uh, you know, we're going to go forward and, and, and make things better. So it's, it's really, a it's a little bit disheartening for me to, to see all the work that went into these things and nothing's ever actually happened with them. So I am looking forward to making, you know, to, to I actually, I'm going to, I'm going to download your 60 page report, read that end to end. And uh, I really want to see how we can all together really try and push for a, a better system right through. So really amazing. So, so one of the things that the UK is trying with their renewal of PAS 128, which is due this month, I believe, um, is actually to also have a client guide attached to it because um, the the standard or specification was designed for the practitioners, the survey practitioners. So your SU, um, well, we don't have a SU equivalent, but your SU engineer. Um, and the... So that, that was a reaction to um, the feedback from when the, when the standard was developed, because what you want, you want um, local authorities, you want uh, companies, uh, consultants, you want them to, if they commission a utility survey, you want them to commission it um, following PAS 128. But they, in a lot of situations, those who hadn't, engaged with PAS 128 didn't really understand what a PAS 128 compliance survey means. So therefore, we've now added a, um, a client guide, which is different. So ASC has done quite a lot of um, explanatory text in the specification, the new version. Um, but that makes it, it, it has the same impact, but we've chosen to do it as an attachment of a better word and or annex, and therefore we hope that that helps the adoption of the of the standard by those who commission the work a bit more, so that then industry can actually fulfil or, or work towards that standard. We're also in the process, but that's probably a, a time for another podcast. We're also in the process of looking at accreditation of survey companies, because again, you, while, while we have the standard, there's still a difference when somebody says we do a past one trade compliance survey, that may With not case, always yeah. mean exactly what those words say. So we're, there's quite a lot of work and that's again driven by industry because they said, well, we've got the standard, that's great, that's the first step, but we can still, it's still quite hard for a client. If you have a list of potential um, or survey professionals, you've got a list of these, it's still quite difficult to identify, even though they may all claim they do a pass one trade compliance survey, to really do your due diligence to really find out what their track record in that is. And so there's quite a lot of work by industry again to try and develop a um, sort of more professional recognition of the ability of the company as well as the no, individuals I know it's going to be company. semantics, but when you're using PASS 120, is it a standard or a best practice? And is it included within the uh, procurement documents? It's up to you whether you include it in the procurement documents. Okay, so, uh, you know, let's, let's, so let's say X Water Company in, in Britain. 
if it's a standard, then it should be as a, you know, as, as a common practice always included within those documents. Or is it, uh, is it going to be left to the judgment of the actual utility, whether they're going to include it in? So uh, for example, yeah. So it's called a publicly available specification. Okay. So it is, it is a standard, but it's not, it's, but you don't have to comply with the oh, standard. That's interesting. I've got British standards, institution standards, BSI or um, ISO standards. Yeah. I don't have to comply with it. But the problem is if something goes wrong, that's when the problem occurs. And it's the same here. So if, if somebody does something and something goes wrong, then and you haven't used PAS 128, no, then it is a problem. David, yeah. I'm sure we are there to just cross industry. That's really interesting. Uh, well, I know here that... Uh, the, the people really make money off all these issues are the litigators and lawyers and the insurance adjusters afterwards. Uh, you know, if, if something went wrong and uh, did you use it, did you not? And one thing I, I once heard that uh, the best precedent is an incident and they're always going to go back to the best practices. And in the, uh, in the absence of law regulations, they're going to go to those best practices or those standards. So it's really amazing how you know, people are literally throwing money out the window by not following these things. And it's just, it's short, uh, short-sighted and, and, you know, just trying to save a few dollars up front versus uh, the, the long-term cost. Yeah, so, so in the UK, we, we haven't got the sort of all the litigation um, side yet, maybe. Um, but I'm, I'm sure it, it, it's bound to come eventually. But what um, industry? So, so we have got. It's only since we had passed one to eight that some companies will actually indemnify against their results. Um, whereas previously they still won't. They will still just say it's at your own risk. You have to do use safe digging practice. This is almost our best guess. Well, it's an educated guess, um, but you still have to use safe. Digging practices, and that's how up to date a lot of companies operated. But more recently, they will indemnify against the um, their results from a um, a Sioux survey. But um, obviously, there will be all sorts of caveats. But but they will do that. But that's only fairly recently, and certainly only since PAS one to eight came out. What do you see as the biggest challenge? of uh, really unifying the industry right now, in your opinion. And I know you have a lot of, you have a lot of uh, perspectives of this from all the different positions and from all the different studies that you've taken. But what do you see as that, uh, that, that biggest challenge? I think in the, in the UK, it is the, um, it is the fragmentation, which is also linked to how the individual utility types are regulated. So we have um, different regulations for water, gas, electricity, um, telecoms. They're all regulated by different regulators with different um, drivers, different targets. And um, I, I, I think that is, is quite a challenge because if I, if I think about a, a water company, um, I, I haven't looked at it recently, but Offwat, which is the regulator for water, they will stipulate all sorts of KPIs and um, 
whether the utility strike, reducing utility strikes is one of the KPIs. I'm not 100% certain, but it will have also, the, the, the biggest driver will, will be to um, reduce leakage. But that's, that can come because it's, there's a utility strike, but can be all sorts of other reasons, deteriorations. It's probably to reduce effluent going into our water, natural waterways. Um, and it's it's probably to ensure supply to consumers. And there, I'm sure there are loads of others. I haven't looked, as I said, I haven't looked at the KPIs in detail recently. Okay. But the reduction utility strikes, I would be surprised if that's there as a KPI in those words. It is indirect if you can reduce your, your leakage. Some of the leakage might be because you damage some of your pipes. But there's also a lot of... Um, we uh, have to understand that there's there's quite a lot of um, that the companies, the asset owners, don't necessarily do the the, the, the um, damage. It's often third party, so it's another contractor working on somebody else's behalf who damages your asset as a third party yeah. damage. Um, and it's not necessarily the the asset owners yeah. working on their own assets doing the damage. So again, I think. You have to differentiate. It's quite. I think it's just a complex industry, complex environment, and I think that now, makes it really with, difficult. With the, the future here, and uh, with your uh, with your students and your grad students and all the different uh, people that you have involved in this, do you see by giving them the tools? Do you see them actually going out to the industry and uh, and affecting change? I know that's every professor's hope and want and, and wish. You know that you, you give them the tools and they'll go make something happen with those tools and affect change and really build the momentum. But do, do you see a difference in the students today of them taking your information, taking the information they've worked on, and really going forward with this? I think, in a certain degree, probably not as much as I would like for the reasons you alluded to, but also because it's we probably don't have quite a critical mass of students who've worked in this area. So because I'm still quite heavily involved in doing quite a lot of the work. Um, so the the sort of grad student system works quite differently in the UK to what it does um, in North America, um, because I've got friends um, who work in Canadian universities. And it's, it's quite different of the lengths of research the grad students do ours do quite short research projects so that it's quite difficult to get them involved in the depth but i've got every year i've got students who are interested in the field and it will certainly open open their eyes and i think they get a much broader appreciation because some will look at the sensing technologies some will look at some data um, statistical data um, record data so we're coming at it from different sides. So I think overall, it is an area that um, that is certainly developing. And, and I think I'm hoping that these um, students go out um, into the industry, into other academic in, um, positions, and really have an appreciation of of the problem. I don't think all of them will stay in the field. I think the other problem is that in in the UK. The, the word municipal engineering and under which I would say this sort of falls is is not a very common term anymore. So we don't really have municipal engineers in our local authorities. Um, but I do know that a lot of um, colleagues will sort of place 
utilities and utility engineering at, at the forefront and really have an interest in, in, in that. So that's when I say colleagues, that's broader. But I think it's almost people who have an interest in that are really pushing for it. It's not that they're not in every local authority. You've got someone who will championing this, but you have probably enough championing it across the UK that you that, that we can it's, see it's some really progress. Funny when I went to school in, in Calgary, uh, I got into the utility engineering world and just to, by chance do a, a private locating firm and a, a public locating firm. So it's really, really incredible how you know just the love for utilities has grown within me over these years. And everything I do and think about are just utility, utilities, utilities. And it's been an evolution for me of how I've uh, developed within the industry and how I, I've participated within the industry. And again, it's 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 all a matter of a personal passion, which I, I really enjoyed. So it's um, it's so so true what you said right now. So I, I can personally feel it. And I can personally uh, understand exactly what you said, David. Anything? <laughs> anything else except for my personal passions? Coming towards the end of our episode, and uh, we've had a lot of questions uh, that we ask uh, we ask every guest on our uh, on our show the first is uh, what, what advice from your experience from your academic uh, perspective what advice would you give industry decision makers uh, to, to tackle the issue of uh, subsurface utilities in, in two or three sentences That's a good question. I mean, for, for starters, I would say we, we have some good standards out there, not just in the UK or the US. Uh, we've, we've talked about the Canadian standard. We've got some in Australia and other places in the world. So I would say actually utilize the standards a lot more um, and because I do actually believe that they're really good standards. Um, and I think if they are applied um, more um, regularly, I think we can actually already make quite an inroad to reduce the utility strikes. But I think the one aspect we haven't talked about and uh, we, are, we are surely up against the time is to also consider the human aspect because no matter how good the data is that you have, how good the instrumentation is that you can have to detect buried assets, there's still a human component and people will get things wrong. And I know that in the future, I've been involved in a couple of projects where they're actually looking much more at autonomous working, where you're actually not where you're taking the human aspect out of the system. Whether that's the way we go, I mean, I can't see this happening in the next couple of years or three years, but I think in the long term, so five to ten years, um, I really see that that's an area that will um, sort of really drive research and drive the way we operate the street. That's a, a very good point. Uh, last question. Who do you think we should have in our podcast next? Sorry, that asked, who do you think we should have on our podcast next as a guest? I'm putting you on the point. Um, yeah, it's, it slightly depends how um, how forward-looking you want to be. Um, we've had, I mean, I've worked with some amazing people. Um, so there are people in... Um, 
in Holland who've done quite a lot of work um, into sort of utility sort of utility management, not just focusing on utility strikes, but taking a much broader view. So that's Leon von der Schulthaus. So he is quite um, interested and well-connected in that field. And also because they have the click system in the um, in Holland. There are people in Norway who um, do quite a lot of work with the sort of Norwegian system and can give a different viewpoint. If you want to go back to the US, I think um, one person who's really sort of uh, had a really big influence on the UK and really influenced the development of PASS 1 to, 1 to 8 is Nick Zambillis, um, previously at Cardno, um, but he's since then retired. Um, but I think he could give you quite a, a good view because he also done something internationally as well. So outside the US, outside the UK, he's done quite a lot in South America to really develop this as well. So, so maybe uh, uh, in a follow-up email, you can do some uh, some introductions to those uh, you know because uh, all found very relevant. But I think. Uh, it is. It is a small. It's a small environment. It's, 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 it's amazing how many people know each other. Anyway, those are all the questions. I don't quite want to cut it short, but I can see a, a long queue of students coming up for my student hour. Uh, this has been a fascinating episode. Great to get the, the UK perspective and great to uh, uh, take a deep dive into, into your work. Uh, lots, of, lots of value here, lots of uh, uh, quick bits that we're going we're gonna to put out on LinkedIn and share with our community. Uh, and hopefully, we'll be able to have you again here in the future. Thank you very much for having me.